Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Here we go again, Colleen. We're back at it with Daniel chapter 4. All right. We are going to discuss the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that tree that we talked about last week. Usually when we're in the throne room with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, it's the king who's upset. Right. But we're going to start in verse 19. And it's interesting. This gets flipped around. Daniel is the one who's upset. Did you ever notice that before? I never noticed that before yesterday, actually. And it's interesting to me what that suggests. The fact that as God reveals to Daniel the meaning of this dream of the tree that the angel says, chop it down, that Daniel's fear suggests to me not so much that he's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, although I suppose there could have been some of that in there, but there's implications for what this means long-term for the nation, for his own relationship with the king. And it also suggests to me that there's some kind of a understanding or sympathy. In fact, it was interesting to me that commentators that I saw suggest that there was a friendship between them that there was actually some level of trust at this point between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, in spite of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had taken Daniel as a teenager and had castrated him likely and had made him, you know, (laughs) head of Babylon in a sense. He was a slave, yet there had developed some sort of trust. Daniel had a position of power in Babylon, which is fascinating in itself. Yeah, and the level of, of upset in Daniel isn't reflected in the English. You know, when I first read it, I thought, yeah, he's afraid of this king. This king tears people up when they when he gets <laughs> yes. bad news or news he doesn't want. But I went on Precept Austin and I was looking at their commentary about this and they said that word appalled means overcome and greatly perplexed to become mute. And that the word used for a while is literally about one hour. So Daniel spent a significant amount of time feeling confused. His thoughts alarmed him. The Septuagint uses a verb that means to be thrown into confusion, confounded, disturbed. And the imperfect tense that's used here pictures it happening over and over. He's ruminating and upset about the interpretation. This isn't just, oh, no, the king's going to tear me up. No. He's upset for the king. It sure seems like it. And perhaps for the empire itself. Mm -hmm. Because remember, Jeremiah had told the Jews to flourish, to pray for the cities, to establish homes, to establish gardens, to flourish and to help the nation where they were enslaved to flourish, and that by helping the nation flourish, they would flourish. So, this had huge implications for all of the Jews in Babylon. It's pretty interesting. So, Nikki, before we talk any more about this, which is actually a really fascinating thing, would you read the rest of the chapter for us so we know what's coming? (laughs) Okay. So, we're in Daniel 4, and we're going to read 19 through 37. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. 
The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged? It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave this stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field, until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So it strikes me, Nikki, as we move into a recounting of the dream, as Daniel interprets this, number one, how many times the same words are repeated? 
about the dream and about what God says to Nebuchadnezzar, there's something super important about that, that God keeps saying, this is going to happen until you acknowledge Mm -hmm. the sovereignty of God. Back at the beginning of our section, right after Daniel is really upset, then he explains the meaning of the dream. He explains that the tree is whom? It's Nebuchadnezzar. And his kingdom. And he really personally identifies it with the king himself. He's very kind of diplomatic at first, because as he describes this, it's interesting. What does he affirm to Nebuchadnezzar? Like in verses 21 and 22 and 23, what does he affirm about the king? He's done well. Yeah. He's provided for all of the people and all of the animals of the land. And the world, in fact. In the words of J. Vernon McGee, as he is telling Nebuchadnezzar how well he's done and what he's actually accomplished as the king of Babylon, McGee puts it this way. First, he, or Daniel, tells Nebuchadnezzar that the good in the dream is for the enemies of the king. I thought that was a really interesting sentence. I had to read it two or three times to get the full impact of it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's success even in scooping up all the countries that he has conquered, has ended up blessing those countries. He was a stable dictator, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. Had a very strong government, a very strong dictator. And even though the people he conquered were conquered vassal kings, they were stable and they were provided for. So all of this lush provision of Babylon was benefiting his enemies, not just himself. It's an interesting thing to think about, that he had a world empire that was that stable, that rich, and that beneficial to everybody that it touched. And this was something that apparently he boasted in, in his life. There are inscriptions. uh, One commentator says um, in several of his inscriptions, Nebuchadnezzar had boasted about the peaceful shelter and abundance of food that he had provided for his subjects through Babylon. Indeed, in these boasts, he used language descriptive of a tree when referring to his rule through Babylon. In one inscription, he said, The produce of the lands, the product of the mountains, the bountiful wealth of the sea within her I received. Under her everlasting shadow I gathered all men in peace. Vast heaps of grain beyond measure I stored up within her. On and on he goes. Doesn't it sound so much like passages of scripture where God declares his sovereignty over all the land and his provision for all? All the people. Yes, it's a godlike power he's claiming for himself. Yes. That is interesting, actually. So, Daniel, as he's talking to him about this dream, he leads by affirming what Nebuchadnezzar has done. And of course, Daniel is going to make it really clear that all of this has been by the sovereign permission and empowerment of the Lord God. Nebuchadnezzar isn't ready to admit that yet. But diplomatically, Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar's success and power, and then he comes in verses 23 onward to the declaration of the Watcher. Now, who's the Watcher and who does he represent? He's God's messenger. He's an angel from heaven who's come to give God's decree. That's right. So, when he says, chop down the tree and destroy it, he makes a condition. The condition is... What? What gets left? The stump with its roots. And he tells them to put a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass 
of the field. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He's not leaving the stump in the middle of a desert field. He's leaving the stump in the middle of new grass, which I've, I'd never noticed that detail before either, but new grass suggests what? In terms of life. Yes. New life. life. Fresh life. Provision for the life to thrive. And it's interesting in this single sentence, he's talking about the tree and to leave it in the new grass. And then in the same sentence, he says, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Well, if you're thinking grass and the tree and dew, that's going to sustain it. And let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. I do find it interesting that in this declaration and in casting him out to live with the beasts of the field, he has now rendered the king a vegetarian. (laughs) Oh, that's really funny. Not Daniel. (laughs) Talk about judgment. (laughs) That I had never thought of that before, Nikki. That's hilarious. Oh, for seven years, this king is going to be judged by eating grass. Oh my. Another thing that's interesting about this is that in the middle of this judgment, the angel shifts into a personal pronoun. Mm-hmm. He goes from talking about the tree to the word he. Mm-hmm. Now, a tree is not a he. So he is now referring to the king. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar. The tree is Babylon. And the angel is making it really clear that Babylon is going to be affected by what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to all appear to be cut down. I I just am so interested in what that actually looked like, because we know from even this very chapter that Babylon didn't cease to exist. Yeah. But Nebuchadnezzar was out of the public limelight for a while. And we don't really know how much of his kingdom knew that he was out to pasture. <laughs> Eating grass. We we don't actually know. It will become public, obviously, because this is his declaration to right. all the peoples of all the earth. Right. But this testimony, this is powerful. Yeah. That they're going from knowing that the king was, he had lost his mind. And we actually have information from secular writers outside of scripture who talk about King Nebuchadnezzar. That's true. Becoming mentally ill for a time. That's true. So this is a really powerful testimony, a very public testimony. You know, I thought of one thing too. Um, One of the sources that you had found was talking about Nebuchadnezzar's accomplishments in terms of building and engineering and architecture. He had a wife who was a Mede, you know, who the Medo-Persians came, that nation came after Babylon and conquered later after Nebuchadnezzar died. But Nebuchadnezzar's wife was a Mede and she missed the forests and the greenery of her home, her original home. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to help her out? Well, this is where I was fascinated. This is where the hanging gardens come in. And I (laughs) shamefully admitted that I used to think these were just like really big, beautiful hanging pots with lots of beautiful flowers (laughs) everywhere. But actually he built mountains and planted trees on top of walls. And he had some kind of hydraulic system that brought water up from the Euphrates River to water these mountains and trees on the walls. And these were called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So this man was hugely accomplished, and he's considered one of the 
most important and prolific builders of the ancient world. What else did you discover about, for example, his pride and his leaving a mark in his buildings? Well, he had inscriptions all over the place. And we found those with archaeology. So this is from one commentator uh, named Showers. I found him on Precept Austin for the Daniel 4 commentary. And he said, from a purely human viewpoint, Nebuchadnezzar had good reason to boast. He probably was the greatest builder in ancient times. 49 building inscriptions of this king have been uncovered thus far. Most of the bricks recovered from ancient Babylon bear this inscription. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. (laughs) He himself declared that his heart impelled him to build. Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt the old palace of his father, then built two more palaces. He built 17 religious temples in Babylon and its suburb, Borsippa. He completed the two great walls that surrounded the city. The outer wall was wide enough for chariots to pass each other on its top. The king installed great fortifications to protect the city and had canals dug from one end of the city to another to facilitate commerce. One was Nebuchadnezzar's most splendid project, and that was the magnificent Ishtar Gate. This was a double gateway through the walls of the city. And the walls of this gate were covered with bulls and four-legged dragons in high relief. The approach to the gate was between strong fortress walls on which were rows of lions in relief and covered with brightly colored tiles. On and on he goes to describe, he he goes into the hanging gardens and he had a beautiful city and I think he thought it was a utopia (laughs) because (laughs) it was beautiful, it was productive, and according to him, it was peaceful. Uh Uh-huh. And Daniel lived there. I find that really kind of interesting Mm -hmm. that as we read this book, Daniel lived in this beautiful city. So when he gets the decree of the watcher that he, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to be cut down, given the mind of a beast and put out to pasture to eat grass, this is what's being left behind. And, you know, I, I, I confess I thought of the wife, the mead, who, you know, for whom those gardens were built. What on earth would you do, Nikki, if suddenly you realized your husband is out in the pasture eating grass? <laughs> I know. I wonder how much people really knew. I wonder, you know, I, I know that this is a different time, but uh-huh. Esther went, was it a year? She didn't even hear from the king. So right. I, I wonder if she even knew what was going on with him. Yeah. Or how much she knew. And yeah. and if he was as successful as he was, then he must have put in place people who were capable of running this without him. Well, clearly, because he was going to get the kingdom back, and there's no mention of the city failing or the nation failing during these seven years. And you want to say, well, who ran the country? Well, we don't know. But we do know that the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been exalted to the position of governors mm-hmm. over Babylon, that Daniel had been raised up even higher than that in the king's own house, that he had other counselors. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's not inconceivable that Daniel was involved in the running of Babylon for seven years. Yeah. Now, that is speculation. 
But we don't see that he lost his position of leadership no, through this at no, all. And, uh-uh. and the fact that the king even had a university setting where he was funneling his captives through, giving them a new worldview. He had team building activities, <laughs> bringing his leaders in yeah. to worship his statues. He was very much invested in creating leaders. He was. So that's so, really fascinating to yeah. think about. It's just thinking about the mechanism of what was going on with Babylon for these seven years. Well, God deals with Nebuchadnezzar. And clearly God was dealing with him. And I think that's the biggest surprise of this whole story. I've always known that God did this to Nebuchadnezzar, but it never dawned on me that God was convincing Nebuchadnezzar of who he was and bringing him to faith in the process. That I never learned. Or the timelessness of this. I mean, I suppose Adventism is very much into how scripture speaks about the future, but there's one commentator, H.A. Ironside, who said, The account is illustrative, for in Nebuchadnezzar we see a picture of all Gentile power, its departure from God, its degradation in bestial character, and its final subjugation to God in the time of the end. At that time, Christ will return in glory, and all nations will prostrate themselves before him, owning his righteous and benevolent sway. So there's so much going on here. Right. There's so much, and God always has all knowledge in mind at all times, at any point in our history. Exactly. Now, I find it interesting that the decree of the Watcher was that this horrible fate of being animal-like without a human mind was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar and would last until he recognized that it is heaven that rules. That's verse 26 of chapter 4. And what's interesting to me, which I did not understand before, was that little note in my footnotes of my NASB that said the word here for heaven that rules was a Hebrew word for God. So, heaven equaled God. The Almighty God rules, and that that is the the phrase behind Matthew, behind the words of Jesus in Matthew, where he said, the kingdom of heaven is among you. You know, when I realized that that was actually a way of referring to God, it helped me somehow with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is among you. When Jesus was on earth and said, the kingdom of heaven is among you, he was referring to himself as God being among them, bringing about the rule of God in his people in a new setting and in a new way. This isn't just an ephemeral kingdom of heaven. This is God. I don't know. That just helped me with the whole thing with the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, too. Yeah, that's that's really neat. And the other thing I love about this decree from the angel is it's so reminiscent, like you've said before, of God telling Abraham, your people will go into Egypt and they'll be slaves for 400 years and I'll come back and I'll take them out. This angel says seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize. So he's going to recognize. Yes. The angel is telling them exactly how long he's going to be there. Kind of like the prophets telling Israel, you yes. are going to be exiled for this amount of time. Yes, it's 70 true. years. 70 years. Uh-huh. You know, God doesn't leave us wondering if God knows what's going on. Right. He knows what's going on and he's wow. got it all. And he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you will, because he says, until you realize 
you will, after seven periods of time, realize that it's heaven that rules. Wow, Nikki, that is amazing, especially when you consider that as an Adventist, I was taught that we sit here and don't know when Jesus is coming back. Now, true, we don't. (laughs) They did. But, (laughs) yeah, they thought they did, 1844. But then we were told by Ellen that we control when Jesus comes back. That if we had hurried up and gotten the work finished, he would have come long before now. And the fact that he's delaying and tarrying is because we haven't gotten our act together and finished the work. No, Paul tells us in Acts that there is a day fixed when God will judge the world. God doesn't leave us in some sort of timeless limbo waiting for us to stop controlling his return or his acts. We don't get in the way of his plans. A more compatible way of understanding this story, if you're thinking from the great controversy worldview, would be if the angel had said, unless you realize. But he said, until. That's a great point. He knew, and and Nebuchadnezzar went into this judgment knowing he was going to come out. (laughs) Knowing he was going to come out honoring the God of heaven, too. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing to me is that at the end of this interpretation, Daniel has advice for the king. And he says to him in verse 27, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Nikki, I never knew before this week that this was a conditional curse, if you will, that Nebuchadnezzar was given yet another chance to repent and avoid this horrible fate. I didn't realize that. And then after that, after Daniel's saying, take my advice, O king, how long was Nebuchadnezzar given? Well, he had another 12 months before this all was fulfilled. And he clearly didn't repent, did he? No, he didn't. You know, it's interesting to me that this verse number 27, where Daniel gave him this advice, was part of what helped me see that he wasn't afraid of the king. Right. That that his anxiety at the beginning was about what was going to happen to him, not telling him, because he was offering the king advice. And if he was afraid of the king, I don't think he would have put his neck out there to offer him this advice. And the other thing is, you know, in, in Egypt, when God was dealing with rebellious Pharaoh, the more God revealed himself, the more it hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's true. And the reverse is going to be true here with Nebuchadnezzar. God is going to, to bring judgment to him and he's going to reveal himself to him, but this isn't going to harden his heart. This That's is going true. to bring him to God. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of that comparison either. Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is God's warning to him. And still, 12 months later, he's out on his house reflecting, looking at Babylon and saying, look what I've done. I have built all this. This is all my glory and my majesty. And isn't it interesting, in verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, he was actually speaking the words. It says, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And it's interesting that the actual translation of the word, a voice came from heaven, the actual meaning of that word came is fell. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is it. 
So the word is in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth and a voice from heaven tells him, curtains, time's up. There's no way he could end up confused about what's going on. Uh-uh. I mean, it's very clear. And once again, the details of what's going to happen to him are spelled out. Same words as was used in the dream. Same words as, as were used when Daniel explained the dream. It's declared to him again, like you said. There's no doubt, and he knows what's going to happen to him. So where did he get taken when he went out and was driven from the people? We don't know. Was he driven into the palace gardens and sort of looked over by the, you know, the agricultural staff, the animal husbandry people? We don't really know. But we do know that somehow he was kept track of. But it says that he was driven away from mankind. So it doesn't seem like he had a lot of oversight, Yeah, but still somehow they knew what happened to him, whether they saw him, whether it was at the end when they saw what had happened to him after seven years, I don't know. But he was driven away. Maybe Daniel told him. (laughs) Maybe. So he lived like an animal for seven years. And then in verse 34, at the end of that period, and here we have the first person pronoun. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. Or another interpretation would be knowledge. My knowledge and reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. So, Nikki, talk about that moment and what it is that Nebuchadnezzar says next. I love the fact that it begins with saying, but at the end of that period, (laughs) this was a sentencing and God intervened now. The period had ended and Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven. This is God's grace letting him do this. Raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. And I read one commentator say that here we encounter the interaction of the mysterious truths of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And, you know, Adventism talks a lot about man's free will. Right. I prefer to refer to that as man's responsibility. It was his personal choice that enabled him to look up. And then reason returned to him by God's sovereign will. And his response was to offer praise. Isn't this how it goes for us? Absolutely. We're living our life as beasts separated from God. And when we finally look up, when his grace allows us to finally look up and see him, Uh we can do nothing but rejoice and repent. And he declares certain things about God that only a person who truly believes in God could have said. He said, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. Nebuchadnezzar understood that it wasn't Babylon that was everlasting. It was God's dominion. And that his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar understood in that moment, after those seven years, that God's kingdom had existed before him and would exist to the next generation, and would exist into all the nations and kingdoms to come. God's kingdom is generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What an admission from the narcissistic raging Nebuchadnezzar. 
none of the inhabitants of the earth are anything in the sight of God, except that God cares for them and sees them and brings them to faith. And he does this according to his will among the host of heaven. Somehow here Nebuchadnezzar is even acknowledging God's power and sovereignty among the watchers, the angelic voices, the messengers who came to him with the word of God. He understood God was even over the angels, that that angel wasn't God. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and Nebuchadnezzar said, none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? That's amazing to me. That he is saying that no one can even question God. Well, there goes the great controversy trial. Hello? This isn't all about questioning God. Is he good? Is he not? Just verse 35 is completely incompatible with the great controversy worldview. Humans have a center stage role in the great controversy worldview. We vindicate God in this great controversy worldview. And he honors our free will above his sovereign rule. Well, that doesn't work with all the inhabitants of the earth. They're accounted as nothing. No, in Nebuchadnezzar's declaration of God, there's no room for a human to say, yes, God, you're awesome. And I'm here to tell everyone you are. Nebuchadnezzar knew the God of the Bible. I did not. Exactly. As an Adventist, I did not know this God. I love something that J.I. Packer wrote. He said, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. I love that. And as an Adventist, I think it would have terrified me to think that God was sovereignly handling, controlling all of the events of the earth. That would have terrified me. Yeah, me too. It stabilizes me now. Yes. And you know, one other thing I have to say about this story of Nebuchadnezzar, whatever we want to say his diagnosis might have been during those seven years, besides just the fact that God did this and it was a judgment and a teaching discipline moment for him, there's something profound about the fact that God's sovereign power, God's word, God's faithfulness, the fact that nothing he says does not come to pass, that stability is what transformed Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not always an animal before that happened, but he was a narcissistic, raging, histrionic king who got his way and killed anybody in his path who disagreed with him. He probably had some sort of a pretty severe personality disorder, God is the one who corrects that. And I know from my own experience as an Adventist, even when I had a really warped worldview, I was living inside of unreality when I didn't understand the true nature of my own depravity and of God's utter sovereignty. And that false view of who I was and who God was and what God expected of me and how I was supposed to vindicate God, it left me pretty confused and a little frantic. And there were times when, because of the way Adventism had shaped my worldview, I was frankly not emotionally healthy. I didn't deal with reality well. I didn't know how. And after understanding who Jesus was and being born again, I've discovered it's God's Word that changes my mind and my heart 
and my ability to live in reality. And once again, we see this very same thing here. Ultimately, God and His truth and His Word is the solution to emotional unhealth. I know that might sound simplistic, but the fact is only truth can fix us. And only when we decide we're going to believe that God can't lie and that what He has done is real and true and that His Word cannot fail, that's when we have something to hang ourselves on, to plant ourselves in, and we can pray that God will keep us in truth and reality, and He will change the way we relate to each other and to ourselves. This always reminds me of one of our very first podcasts where we talked about why we do this. And we talked about the fact that Adventism puts obstacles in front of people in their desire to know God. Because knowing God is what changes us. When we know God, when we know Him through His Word, all of that internal healing, all of our reason comes to us, and He begins to change us. It makes me think of what Jeremiah said, "'Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me.'" That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He started out boasting in his riches and in all that he had and all he had done, and then he came to know the true God. And now he's sending out this decree to all the people in all of the land, boasting in what's true about his God. Only God can change Nebuchadnezzar into that kind of a man. And you know what's interesting to me? I know there have been disagreements over the years by many different commentators about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was saved, but it's interesting to me how many actually believe he was, because I don't think anybody but a saved person could make these declarations about God. Coming from where Nebuchadnezzar had come from, he came from a completely different worldview, and he saw who God was. And he had peace, and he had the kingdom restored to him. Only God could have done that. Only God could have preserved his reputation to the point that he gave him back his authority and allowed him to declare the truth about God to the world. And it's interesting to me when I think about it that this was pre-cross. This transformation happened to Nebuchadnezzar before Jesus went to the cross, before he was incarnated, it happened because God was saving Nebuchadnezzar and he revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar believed. And now on this side of the cross, God asks us to believe what he shows us about himself. And on this side of the cross, the great revelation is that he has sent God the Son in the person of Jesus in human flesh to die to become sin for us, to become sin for all who believe, including, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus' death on the cross paid for Nebuchadnezzar's sin, as well as for Daniel's sin, as well as for our sin. And when we see what God has done, He didn't have to, but He loved us, and He sent His Son to pay for our sin, to die, to be buried, and to rise on the third day, to give us new life. How can we do anything but respond to Him with gratitude and joy? So if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't seen that He carried your sin to the cross, 
this is the time to do it, to repent, to acknowledge who God is, to say, yes, you're telling the truth. I see what you've done, and I need you to save me. And he will. He will give you new life, and he will show you his sovereign grace and power, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. And join us next week as we begin chapter 5 of Daniel and we discuss Belshazzar's feast. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music